Carol Joseph is a Jewish woman who loves Jesus. She was raised in a nominal Jewish family in Massachusetts and had great memories, fond family memories of Passover celebrations in the spring of each year as they would gather at her aunt's home in Brooklyn, New York, and celebrate the Passover, enjoying the Seder meal, the traditional Jewish Seder meal that the Jewish people even still uh, do together to recount the Exodus story in the Bible of the, of the people of God being drawn out from Egypt, by, led by Moses and, and led by God himself into the wilderness and drawn out of slavery into freedom. And she recalls such fond family memories of, of those gatherings. And yet at one point as a child, she remembers asking her mother in December, seeing all the hubbub of Christmas around them, why don't we celebrate, celebrate Christmas as a family? And the answer was simple. Well, we don't believe in Jesus And so we don't celebrate Christmas. That's not what we do. She grew up loving the liturgy of the synagogue. She loved God and she wanted to please Him very much so. But as she continued to grow up, she began to experiment with other religions. And then finally, when she was in graduate school, working on a Ph.D., her Ph.D. tutor, a man named Chris, was a Christian, she came to find out. And she was fascinated that such a scholarly and academically oriented person, a brilliant man, could be a Christian. She'd actually never met a person who professed to be a Christian. She had just not been around them before. And she was amazed to learn that this man knew the Bible better than she did. He knew what the Old Testament was all about. And he knew the stories of it. In fact, he pointed her at one point to Isaiah 53 and read to her the passage about the Lord's suffering servant and showed her how That is the picture that Christians have of Jesus. She recognized that and was amazed that that was coming out of her scripture. She hadn't recognized it before. But she would debate him off and on about the hot topics of the day. This was back in the 1980s. And she would debate him about abortion and evolution and other things that would come up. Things that she believed in, but he saw differently. And she was intrigued always by the answers that he would give to those things, causing her to think in ways she had not before. But then finally, in 1988, a headline hit the newspapers that gave her the ammunition she thought she needed against him. It was the, the televangelist scandals of Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, maybe you remember, the financial scandals and such that came and hit the news on the part of those visually prominent Uh, Christian leaders, and she took the headline to Chris's office and she slapped it down on the desk and she said, okay, explain this. Chris took the article and scanned through it and he looked back up at her and he said, Carol, those are just people. People fall. People make mistakes. People do things they ought not to do. Don't judge Jesus by what people do. Judge Jesus by what Jesus did. And with that, she says, she believed. She had nothing else she could come and take against him. And she became a Christian because she realized an important bit of wisdom. Don't miss the truth of the message because you're distracted by the novelty of the messengers. 
the way that we see the message can be deeply affected, profoundly affected by the way that we receive the message. The way that we see the messengers confuses us oftentimes, and so we don't receive the message. The Lectio Continua this morning was from Numbers chapter 2. Aaron made some good points about it, and and Jim Pockta was such a good sport to come up and read from Numbers 2. We kind of joked earlier in the week. He, He was actually supposed to read last week when Jeff Murray got to read Numbers chapter 1, which was kind of a hard list of names and such. And Jim thought that he had gotten off easy. And then I came back in the week and said, no, sorry, not so easy for you. A whole list of names and even numbers for you this time around. And, and we might wonder, what in the world is that all about? Why are those details in the Bible? Well, the book of Numbers parallels Hebrews in some important thematic ways. And that's why we're reading through Numbers along with Hebrews In Numbers chapter 2, as we read, if you were able to listen and to hear and to read along perhaps and to see what was happening there, God is arranging Israel in their camp together. He's numbering their numbers, but he's also arranging them in the camp. On the east side are these three tribes. On the west side are these three tribes. On the north side are these three. And then on the south side are these three tribes. But on the side of what? Right in the middle... Of the Israelite tribes is the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting was the place where heaven and earth intersected, as it were, where God came down to be with his people. And so God carefully arranged his people in their camp in such a way as that all of them could see God. They were arranged in such a way that their leader was there within sight of them. They could see, and therefore they were oriented to who they were as a people. The Hebrews, to whom this letter is written, can't see. They're distracted by circumstances around them, hardships around them. As I said last week, perhaps they're in Rome and they're undergoing persecution. They're they're facing persecution to come. They recognize it coming and they can't see any longer God leading them, and so they're beginning to imagine the impressive messengers of the Old Covenant, the angels, as they recalled. And so the writer says to them, don't return to the Old Covenant because you're more impressed by the messengers who brought it down. Don't miss the gospel because you're unimpressed with how Jesus, the suffering servant, went down. You have to see that he's superior to the angels. Now, angels were a thing in the first century church. I don't know exactly why, but they were a thing there. In fact, Paul, in writing to the Colossians, had to say to them, don't be misled by those who insist on worshiping angels, because some evidently were. The Jews considered that the angels played a role, a significant role, in bringing the message of God, delivering it in the Old Testament to the people of God. And and in fact, the angels did. I mean, you can go back and read the different stories of that. Abraham was met by the angel of the Lord. Jacob was met by the angel of the Lord. Joshua was met by the angel of the Lord. And on the list goes, the angel of the Lord brought the message of God to the people of God so frequently. And angels are magnificent creatures. They're mysterious, certainly, but they're magnificent creatures that would draw our attention so naturally if only we could see them, for sure. They remained faithful to God since the day of their creation, those who are faithful to Him still anyway. They need no grace. 
They're angels. But don't miss the truth of the message because you're distracted by the novelty of the messengers. This writer says, if you turn to the old covenant to seek refuge, then you're turning away from the new covenant and God's rescue. God's word, in fact, came in the flesh, he says. It took a place a little lower than the angels to purify us from sin and then sat down at God's right hand. Therefore, Jesus is superior to the angels. Now, this chapter is a string of logic. It's, it's a chain quotation. It's, it's a, a sequence of quotations from the Old Testament. These hearers, having believed the Old Testament, he didn't need to prove that to them. And he simply persuades them by using a series of Old Testament quotations in such a flood, the idea is that by the end, the hearer will simply say, okay, okay, that's enough, I see it. And that's what he does here. And so he begins by saying that Jesus is superior because of his name. Angels worship a king. Jesus inherits the kingdom. The name he's inherited is more excellent than theirs, he says. For to which of the angels did God ever say this? You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. The first quote is from Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm regarding God's anointed one being distinct from the rulers of the earth. The rulers of the earth in that psalm plotting their strategy against God himself. It's a poetic picture of all of mankind in their hearts, plotting against God and strategizing their own way to make their way and find significance apart from God. And that psalmist says that God would anoint his king to lead and that king would be his son. And the writer simply applies that psalm to Jesus. And then the second quote is from 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, God's word comes to David, King David, through Nathan the prophet. David wants to build a temple. He wants to build a home for God in which God himself can reside with his people forever. And through Nathan the prophet, David hears the words from God, You won't build my house. Your offspring will build my house. And he goes on to say to him, Regarding your offspring, I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. In other words, God's saying to David, Don't worry, David. Your son will be my son. But this writer takes it and applies it in a much broader way, saying in the New Testament, Jesus in particular fulfills what God said to David on that day. It wasn't just Solomon, the son, who built the temple. It was Jesus, the son, the Messiah, who would build the church, the home in which God himself resides today. And so this writer applies that to Jesus. Jesus is anointed the king and the son of the father. And so his name is I am. In John chapter 8, maybe you know this passage where Jesus is interacting with the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders of his day, and and they're perplexed about him. They despise him because of who he seems to claim to be. And Maybe they wonder, is he really this one? But they don't want for him to be because they're so antagonistic against him. And finally, he says to them, look, before Abraham was, I am. And those who heard him, informed of exactly what he was referring to from the Old Testament, picked up stones to kill him because it was 
blasphemous to claim to be God if you weren't. And that's what he was doing. Before Abraham was, I am. Moses at the burning bush heard from God when he was saying, if I go to the Jews, my people in Egypt, and tell them to follow me, what if they say, who are you? Who cares about you? And God said to him, what? Just tell them that I am sent you. And Jesus is saying, that's who I am. The name that he inherits doesn't make any sense to us because it doesn't have a reference point. You know, you have a name that refers to the family in which you're born. Or at the very base of it all, your name is human being because you were created, you were made out of the world that is in which God has placed you. You have a reference point, but God is beyond a reference point. So he simply says, I am. That's my name. And so the third quote that he gives in verse 6, he says, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So think Bethlehem. Think Christmas. When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Some think that that, that refers not so much to Bethlehem as it does to the to the ascension of Jesus after his resurrection, or to the second coming of Jesus. Either way, it doesn't really matter. Let all God's angels worship him. The superior name means that he receives worship. Now, no other religion worships Jesus. The Jews, the Muslims, Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, whatever religion you want to draw together, none of them worship Jesus. They might honor him, They might respect him in their own sorts of ways. They don't worship him. Everyone worships something. You know you do worship something. You you worship things apart from Jesus, whether it's a lifestyle or a career or a social position or just the desire to, to hang on to your coolness as you grow older. Whatever it is you worship, you place it on a pedestal because you say, that's worth something to me. The name that Jesus inherits is a name to worship it's the only name to worship don't miss the truth because the messenger is novel jesus also is superior he says because of the role that he assumes in verse 7 beginning he says that that the angels comply with commands and jesus sustains the universe what does he say there he says of the angels he says he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever. And you, O Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the the very beginning. The first quotation that he draws there, angels, winds, ministers, flames of fire, comes from Psalm 104, which is a beautiful, magnificent psalm that extols God's commanding of all of creation to do his will. All of creation is at his beck and call, including the angels, the messengers, including the ministers, the servants, who are his creation, who do what he calls them to do. But of the Son, he says, and he begins to quote from Psalm 45, a psalm extolling the eternal nature of God's kingdom, that your throne is forever. And then Psalm 102, seeking the strength from God who made all things, this psalmist is declaring that the heavens are the work of your hands and acknowledging that though the heavens perish, the creator remains because he sustains all things. Jesus is God, in other words. He's the creator of everything. He sustains the universe. 
All of the creation does his bidding. Jesus' role is superior to the angels. So don't be so impressed by the messengers that you miss the message, he says. You know, don't be distracted by the preacher even. This is something for for Christians to think about, to begin to apply. I mean, they were thinking about angels and the messengers that God had sent. Christians in our evangelical world today often put so much weight on the preacher that speaks to them on a Sunday morning that they miss the message. You know, the the preacher might be careless and sloppy, and therefore they want nothing to do with the preacher. And so they totally miss the message. Or maybe the preacher is so slick and polished and so eloquent that they just want more of him, and they forget the message. The preacher's job is really kind of to disappear. That's in a part why we wear these robes. It, It sort of helps us to disappear. It kind of takes the attention off of us and shows that we're under an authority that's greater. Your preacher's not an entertainer. You know that. And that's not what the call of of a servant, of a messenger, a minister is to be. And maybe that's why the book of Hebrews is anonymous, I kind of wonder. Nobody really knows who wrote it. Maybe that kind of makes the point. It doesn't matter what man wrote this letter. It came from God himself. He makes his angels winds. He makes his ministers a flame of fire. He sends them as he will to proclaim who he is. He then says that Jesus is superior because of the position that he takes. Verse 13, he says that angels take a position of service while the Son, Jesus, takes a position of authority. He says, to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Now this quotation in these verses is from Psalm 110. We'll come back to Psalm 110. Very importantly, later in Hebrews, it has more application to do in Hebrews later on, But like Psalm 2, this is a psalm in which God will sit his king on the throne. God is the one who created. God is the king of the universe. And he will place his king on the throne. Jesus is placed in a position of authority. And the angels are placed in the position of serving. But this verse 14 should be kind of intriguing to us. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Now, you may remember, maybe you read the, was it Frank Peretti, the novels back in the, was it the 1990s or so, back in the day, in that day, about the angels and, and the, the spiritual warfare that goes on, supposedly, in the, in the rafters of a church. You know, an angel sitting over here and a, a demon's over here and they're fighting each other during the middle of the sermon. And I don't think it's quite like that. But this writer gives us something to think about here. Angels come to serve you. They do. I mean, go back and think about the Old Testament stories that you know. Elijah in the wilderness, down and depressed, in the dumps, ready to die. And an angel of the Lord comes to minister to him. Daniel in the lion's den. At the moment of death, and an angel of the Lord comes 
to serve him. Now, in 2 Kings, one of the most dramatic stories in the Old Testament, the king of Assyria is threatening Jerusalem. Jerusalem teetering on the brink of downfall. And the king of Judah, Hezekiah, prays to God, O God, have mercy on your people one more time. And that night, the angel of the Lord passed through the camps of Assyria and struck down 185,000 soldiers. The next morning, they woke up dead. Because the angel of the Lord came to serve the people of God, calling out for God's mercy. Now, we would say that new revelation from God has ceased. We have the Bible. It is God's word to us. There is no more new revelation from God to come. But, do you think that such angelic help was only for the Old Testament? You would be badly mistaken. It's not. I mean, Joseph and Mary, with this unexpected pregnancy, and Joseph, worried, concerned about what this must look like, we're not even married yet. Despairing of their circumstances, and an angel from the Lord comes to minister to Joseph. Jesus in the wilderness, angels from the Lord come to minister to the Son of God Himself and to care for Him there. Peter in prison in the book of Acts. An angel of the Lord comes and finds him in prison to care for him. Paul, before his shipwreck in Acts 27, on the island, he tells the people from the ship, an angel of the Lord came to minister to me last night to tell me that none of us will be lost. An angel of the Lord came. And Jesus himself even explained it. In Matthew 13, the parable of the Weeds. He's just explained how the, the, the seeds sprout and grow, and the weeds grow in the midst of the, of the fruit. And at the end, in the harvest, the reapers will come to separate the two. And Jesus explains that parable, and he says, The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. And then he says in the parable of the net, shortly after that, he says, just directly, he says, At the end of the age, the angels will come, and separate the evil from the righteous. I had a student in Georgia, in RUF, when I was there. I think I've told you about this before. This student was new to Mercer University, where I was with RUF. She came and showed up at the beginning of a semester, having transferred from a school in Kentucky, out of state. She knew no one in Macon, Georgia. She came to to major in a particular major that was there. And she came to me. She came and found me. And she said, I'm not a Christian, but I want to be, I need to be. And my friend told me to find the RUF campus minister, that he could help me. I don't know who her friend was. I have no idea. I don't want to super spiritualize it or over-dramatize it. I don't know who her friend was. But in scriptural terms, who knows? It's not beyond me. It shouldn't be beyond you to suggest, was it an angel? who directed her to a place where she could come to faith. You know, maybe at the end of the age, God in heaven will show you and give you a a, a sort of, as Sinclair Ferguson says, a movie screen cinema opportunity to see your own life and to recognize with spiritual eyes where angels came to serve you who would inherit salvation. They must 
The Bible says that they do, and if they didn't, you would never end up in the seat where you are now. After all, this writer says later at the end of this letter, he says to them, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Why? Because some have entertained angels unaware. Why would he say that? To the New Testament church, to the church in Rome, this pagan city of all places. Why would he say that to them? Some of you have entertained angels unaware. You didn't know it. Why why would he say that? Because angels come to serve God's people. The Son of God sends them with authority. His position is superior. He finally says that Jesus is superior to the angels because of the message that he brings. At the beginning of chapter 2, he explains this, saying that angels declared a foreshadowing, but Jesus fulfilled a covenant. Chapter 2, at the beginning, he says, We must pay much closer attention, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, attested to us by those who heard, while God bore witness by signs and wonders and miracles and gifts as the Holy Spirit worked. Now, again, the angels, the Jews considered that the angels had participated in bringing the Old Testament law to Moses. That's what they imagined, that's what they saw, and Scripture shows it in various ways that they looked back and and considered that to be the case, that the angels played a a significant part in the delivering of that law to Moses, that old covenant. And he's simply saying to those who want to rely on those angels' message, look back at their message. It proved to be reliable. You recognize that we're all bound by that law. We live under that law apart from Christ, and those who break that law find the consequences of that disobedience. But he says the Old Testament looked forward. It foreshadowed our need for Christ and God's fulfilling that need in Christ. The Old Testament looks forward to that, so don't go backward. What was Jesus' superior message? What was his superior gospel to what the angels had brought? It was simply this, what the writer had already said. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God himself. God became a man so that man could become pure in the sight of God. Now, the Hebrews probably had a bit of a problem with that. They probably had some concern that if Jesus... This Messiah is greater than the angels, then why did he have to die? Because the angels don't die. They're eternal. They live forever. Why is this one who's superior, why does he come and die on a tree? How is that? Well, it's really simply this. It's it's in that sense of him making purification for sins. What did he have to do? He had to, to, to gain forgiveness for disobedience. And you know as well as I do that you can't just forgive. It's not that simple. When someone has offended you or, or, or violated you in some way, to forgive them is not a simple thing. It's a painful thing. It's a difficult thing. It requires some suffering on your part, doesn't it? Even if it's a simple thing, 
that they've offended you in some way, for you, if they, they come and apologize for you to say, I forgive you, then you have to fight against your own self in the future as you want to bring that back up in your own mind or in your own heart to remember their offense against you. And you want to remember, well, they did that against me, and I, you know, I forgave them, but now they're going to really have to be nice to me. You can't do that. That's not forgiveness. And it requires suffering on your part to deny that. So even the simplest act of forgiveness requires suffering on your part. How much more the act of God forgiving those who have rebelled against them, Him throughout all of creation. It required great suffering and only God Himself could endure that suffering. And so He became a man so that man could become pure in the sight of God. That's his message. Peter was the apostle to the Jews. Just as Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And, and Peter writes in 1 Peter his own kind of twist on these very words. And it's interesting. I'm going to read it to you. Listen carefully and see how much it parallels what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. In 1 Peter, he writes this. He says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours... They're looking forward, foreshadowing. They searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. They were looking forward. They knew something was coming. They just didn't know what. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. Does that sound familiar? In the things that that have now been announced to you, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Peter, the apostle to the Jews, is simply saying to them, the message that Jesus brought to you is so much superior to the one that the angels helped to deliver to Moses that the angels themselves long to look into it. They come to serve you who will inherit it because they're fascinated by it as much as you're fascinated by angels. They want to come and see. They want to see how God's going to work this out. It's amazing to them. They who have been wise through all eternity long to look into this message, this salvation. Isn't that amazing? They're magnificent creatures. They don't receive grace. They don't require grace. And those who fell get no grace. This message comes only for you who will inherit salvation as the angels minister to you as servants. Christ is superior to the angels. Don't miss the truth of the message because you're distracted by the novelty of the messengers, he says. Jesus is superior. His name and his role, his position and the message that he brings, all are much greater than the angels, infinitely so. Therefore, don't miss the truth of the message because you're distracted by the novelty of the messengers. How tragic would that be? And therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we should drift away from it. God forbid. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. O Lord, we pray that you would give to us eyes to see.
that we might believe and recognize that though your messengers, your angels are magnificent, truly indeed, and mysterious to us, yet might it not be that we would be so distracted by novelties that we would miss the message of the gospel. Cause us by the work of your spirit to believe and to have life in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.